Ugh, I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny Kane. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed, so I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners, from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre- and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. 
Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're going to be talking about starting your baby on solid foods. Is there a best time to start? What foods should you introduce first? Is it best to do baby-led weaning, purees, or a mix? What about nutritional requirements, allergies, water, texture windows, and flavor windows? Is food before one just for fun? And does your baby have any say on this? Lily Nichols has answers. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. I hope you are all doing well, staying healthy, and making sure to practice some self-care in these times. Thank you for your continued love and support of the show. And if what you hear is helpful, remember to subscribe. It's free, and that way you're not going to miss a thing. All right, so this episode today is with the wonderful Lily Nichols. We have done great episodes in the past. We've talked about what to eat during pregnancy, updates on that, and also about gestational diabetes. Today, we're going to focus on introducing your baby to solid foods. And I am very excited to be talking with Lily about that. So welcome, Lily. It's great to have you back on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the re-invite. Yeah, and I could not invite you fast enough after I saw the fantastic blog post that you you put out on starting solids. And I was I internally gave a little like thanks to the universe because this is a questions I get this question I get asked this question a lot and it comes up a lot on my groups as well and I was just like, who's the right person for this? And then you pointed to yourself. So thank you. <laughs> there you go. You are welcome. Yeah. For those who don't know you, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. So actually, interesting, we're talking about starting solid foods with baby because pediatrics is something I only dabble in. Most of my work is on prenatal nutrition and supporting um, mothers leading up to, during, and after pregnancy, including pregnancies that have been complicated by gestational diabetes. And uh, I've been on the show before, so a lot of people know that my background is as a registered dietitian nutritionist and also as a diabetes educator. And I'm the author of two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and also Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And my work is really these days about highlighting the areas where there's gaps in the current prenatal nutrition guidelines and how we can do better, how we can fill in those gaps with an emphasis on doing so with real food. Mm -hmm. And I so highly recommend your books to anyone who might be experiencing gestational diabetes or is just thinking about getting pregnant, right? To Because the work that you've done uh, is unique in that you go so deep into the research and actually focus on what's there and not just continue to do things as, you know, diets as the as recommended and just like as we always do things, right? But right. consider whether they're actually working or not and what is what has evolved in terms of nutrition and pregnancies. So, yeah. Exactly. I like to keep my toe in the research. And so even though we're a little bit far, we've strayed from that topic right now with solids um, for inserting solids with babies, you are, though, immersed in it in that you have a baby at home who I'm guessing just started solids. Yep, she just turned six months old. And of course, I have an older kiddo, too, who's almost four and 
he also obviously eats food. <laughs> so I've been through it with the two of them. Um, and I've taken a similar look at, you know, what are the guidelines around solids? What does the research say one way or another? There's a lot of um, really dogmatic opinions about how to introduce solids and what's best and all that. So I, I did with this um, new blog post I came out with want to take a, a deeper dive into what's out there, what the opinions are and what the research says. So in terms of like the big, the first question is when's the best time to start? What did you find out in terms of that? So this is interesting in that sort of like the general dietary guidelines, different countries have different guidelines. Not everybody agrees. Um, so some recommendations say four months, some say six months. I'd say these days, most recommendations suggest introducing solids around six months. Um, I've also seen that there's a little more discussion of looking for signs of readiness in the infant rather than just a specific age at which to introduce solid foods. But generally, you want to aim for about six months combined with looking for signs of readiness in the infant. Mm -hmm. And why is that biologically six months seems to be the sweet spot? So there's a couple reasons. Um, first of all, at around six months of age, um, their digestive system becomes a little more developed and is able to take in things other than just pure breast milk or if you're formula feeding formula. Um, so their microbiome needs time to get established first. And it does so, I mean, biologically speaking, with mother's milk, um, first of all. We also know breast milk is um, free of pathogens, whereas when you introduce solid foods, there's a greater possibility that the baby could get some type of foodborne infection. And so there's data showing that if you introduce solids earlier at, say, three or four months, there's higher rates of gastrointestinal infections in infants. So it seems like, again, waiting until that six-month mark is a good idea. There's also um, some nutrients that become required in higher amounts than are provided in breast milk around the time that baby hits six months. And those are both iron and zinc. And although nutrient levels in breast milk can vary, iron and zinc are two specific nutrients where no matter how much a mother eats, you're not going to see a huge shift in the iron and zinc concentrations in breast milk. It's not something that you can, you know, really enhance the concentrations in your milk. So again, pointing to the fact that we want to introduce foods that would provide those nutrients at that point. Um, and then also infants tend to be hitting some of these signs of readiness around the six month mark, like starting to sit up well with minimal support, or maybe they're um, starting to develop their pincer grasp where they can pick up foods. Uh, so there's a lot of lot of different theories on why this specific time frame um, is is typically recommended. Yeah. And some of those signs of readiness, I've, al I've also heard about them being interested in your meals, like starting to want to take stuff away from your plate. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some people see that's probably the sign you'll see the earliest. And so you don't want to use that one alone because mm -hmm. they'll start trying to grab things off your plate sometimes around like four months or at least my kids did. Um, but when you start to see them really try to um, pick things up with their thumb and forefinger more, the pincer grasp, now that typically doesn't get like fully developed right at six months. That can take longer, maybe even to nine months. But 
being really um, accurate with the picking up of toys or objects and getting them to their mouth. Um, you see they're ready to chew, like teething on toys. Um, they've lost that extrusion reflex where they are trying to like spit out things that go into their mouth, but are kind of like enjoying chewing on things. Um, these are all milestones to look for. Right. So you look at it as a whole, not just one, and sort of test the waters a little bit? That's what I'd say. I mean, you really, yeah, you really do just have to try, right? You yeah. can offer some food and see what baby does with it. If you notice that they like, you know, are spitting it out right away, or they, you know, just give you this awful face or whatever, you don't have to force it. Um, they're not really going to be eating large quantities of food right away, which I think that's kind of what a lot of, maybe it's an American thing. People are like, okay, we're starting solid. So you need to eat this specific portion size of XYZ food. And they're really probably just going to be taking tiny, tiny little tastes at the beginning. Well, and that kind of goes hand in hand with something that we hear a lot is that food is for fun during the first year. And I know that you have some thoughts on that, but I think it speaks to the fact that the amount of food that's actually going to get in the belly is probably at the beginning not necessarily that much. So it's more about practicing those readiness things, right? Of picking things up and putting them in the mouth and getting exactly. that tongue not to be extruding things, but actually, yeah, like all exactly. the food coming out, I can just picture my baby who's like, it's like, no, you're supposed yeah. to swallow, right? <laughs> yep. And some of that just takes time for them to develop. They're still learning how to, you know, move things around with their tongue and their mouth. I mean, you think about it, they've only been drinking fluids their whole life and suckling from a breast or a nipple typically. So it's a new it's a new skill, like oral motor skill that that does need to be developed. So, you know, I, I, I do like the food before one is just for fun in that I think the intention is that, you know, parents don't need to worry if their child is slower to take to solid foods or not interested in eating large quantities, especially at first. Um, although I do have thoughts on the nutritional side of things, which right. we can talk about. I think there's a role for being intentional about what you introduce um, and even some intention around, around when you introduce. There are some important reasons to introduce solids um, early on, but you do kind of have to let it be playful and fun and not create this like high stress or anxiety around it because really all you can do is introduce and see how baby does and try again and see how baby does and maybe you back off for a little bit maybe you move forward maybe you introduce more variety early on and so much of it is dependent on the child you have in front of you well and also that's kind of how babies do everything right they don't like just one day wake up and crawl or stand up and walk exactly. like it's a very much of a back and forth cha-cha process with everything so it makes exactly. yeah it makes sense it's the same with food i remember not that long ago right my daughter is well it's she's 15 so i guess it's a little bit um but having people recommend that I start with cereals and with rice cereal and oat cereal and such. What are your thoughts on that? And is that something that's good to start with or what's a better choice? So the reason that infant cereals 
specifically in infant rice cereal is the is the the reason that this is even recommended is that it's fortified with iron and it's unlikely to be an allergen so remember when i talked about the nutrients of concern that like oop breast milk alone might not be enough to meet a growing baby's needs so we want to introduce complementary foods right Iron and zinc are two of the things that you're thinking about. So mm, all the I, baby cereals are fortified with iron. Some of them also are fortified with zinc as well. Um, but also rice is an unlikely allergen. And so that's another reason why it's a, a common food. Plus, think about it with like pediatricians and like telling people to make their own purees or whatever. It's like you can mass produce fortified infant rice cereal and then get all the pediatricians on board and be like, here, just give the moms like an easy option. This rice cereal will cover them. Right. Um, but there are whole food sources of iron and zinc that are also unlikely to be allergenic. And before we had fortified foods, that was the food that everybody introduced and that's neat. Um, so most cultures are introducing some form of meat or animal foods um, as at least one of the first foods early on. And those would supply your iron and zinc in very highly absorbable forms um, and also really unlikely to be an allergen. Yeah. And do you know that the next question I'm going to ask is for our vegetarian friends? What mm -hmm. are, are there some options for non-meat eaters to start with that may supply the iron sink that their baby needs or is is that just you know add whatever foods you're doing and then do supplements well i mean that might depend on um like to what degree the person is vegetarian whether whether they are vegetarian or whether they are vegan um so if they are vegetarian for example they might be interested in starting with egg yolk that won't give a ton of iron but it does give a little bit of zinc um, and would be you know a, a good like protein source as well for baby there's kind of some controversy around eggs as a first food um, with the allergy potential but at the same time there's also research suggesting early allergen introduction is a good thing some of the foods the vegetarian foods that are high iron um you could try like, you know, you could do like pureed spinach or um, pureed black beans or something like that. Um, they might be a little tough on baby's very, you know, early developing digestive system. I know my son had a lot of gastrointestinal discomfort with beans um, early on. So, you know, that's an option. You do want to keep in mind, though, that it is um, non-heme iron instead of heme iron. So it won't be quite as well absorbed. Um, one other option I'll throw out there, which some people would be agreeable to and other people would not be agreeable to, um, would be canned oysters. And I know this sounds really weird because we're talking vegetarian or vegan, but some people who, um, follow a vegetarian or vegan diet for ethical or animal rights reasons feel okay eating bivalve shellfish because they don't have a central nervous system and therefore don't feel pain. Um, and canned oysters are actually a really soft texture that can be easily be um, mashed with a fork um, or squished if you like squish it against the roof of your mouth with your tongue, which is one of the, you know, signs of safety for first food um, with a very young infant. Um, but it's also extremely high in iron and zinc. Um, 
caveat here is shellfish is a potential allergen. So for me, it's usually not like a absolute first food that I re recommend, but it is a really nutrient dense um, source of iron and zinc to consider. And then finally, I do want to throw out that this could also be the case where maybe you do want to do an iron fortified infant rice cereal. It's not that it's bad. I just think that there are other whole food options that you can consider, right? And I think meat generally is going to be um, like the, the better of all those options that I've mentioned. But if you're not doing meat, you could absolutely still do an iron fortified rice cereal. And there's, you know, you're fine. <laughs> like that's also a good source. There's a reason so many people um, do that as a food. I'm just always like advocating on the, on the other side for, for the real food sources. Right. And it could be, you could start with something else as well and mix in, you know, max, mix and match as you go. Um, if you don't want to start with the cereals and you don't want to start with meat, what are some other, or, you know, regardless of what you want to start off, what are some other good options? Yeah. And I think um, to, to speak to that also is like a lot of people get really hung up on there being like the perfect first food to introduce. And you really don't need to get so stressed out about this. Like you can introduce many different foods. It doesn't, it's not like there's one food that like is going to make or break the health of your baby or their food preferences for life or anything like that. Um, so we do want to be thinking about iron and zinc and, and think about introducing some foods that include those nutrients um, over time. However, you can start with many other different foods that are not a source of iron and zinc or incorporate those within the mix of things that have iron and zinc. So an example of that would be, um, you know, some like soft cooked sweet potato or banana or some cooked vegetables. If you could do purees or some people do baby led weaning. Um, I think those are also some good like low allergen risk foods that you could consider. Mm, I've also heard a lot about avocados and that was yeah um, avocado yeah. fantastic one yeah and so in terms you mentioned a point of introducing many different things and I completely agree then there is often you hear the concern about well because of the allergen potential you should only try one thing at a time and do it for several days before introducing another one what are the benefits or the risks of doing that and how how much should people adhere adhere to that protocol so what's interesting about the allergen introduction conversation is there's been like a complete 180 on the research on this in the past 15 years or i should say complete 180 on the recommendations um because previously it was recommended that you avoid all common allergens sometimes for one year, or in some cases, they recommended avoiding it for up to three years. And now it's shifted. And we've found that when you introduce certain allergens early, there's actually a lower risk of the child developing an allergy later on. And we have the greatest research on this for peanuts and eggs, by the way. Um, so I, that's like one part of the question, which we can talk about. And then the other part of the question was about like, food spacing, if I heard that correctly, mm -hmm. like, how long do you wait between introducing different foods? And I was kind of disappointed when I did a literature review on this, and that I really couldn't find super distinct studies on 
an ideal timing, whether you should wait one day or you should wait three days or introduce multiple foods in one day. It's like everybody has differences of opinion. And I didn't see any trials that are like, okay, these infants were introduced to one food every three days and had this result. And these infants were introduced to one food every single day and had this result. Like those studies don't exist to my knowledge. Um, so I can share my personal opinion, um, which comes from the stance of um, not just the allergen exposure, but the exposure to flavors. And there is research showing that there is what they call a flavor window where infants are especially receptive and willing to eat many different flavors in like the five to seven month range. And of course, that's kind of an interesting range because a lot of us aren't starting until six months and then seven months doesn't give you all that much time, right? You have what, what one month window. It's not that this window closes. It's just that when they observe infant responses to solids and what they're willing to eat later on, they find that when you introduce um, a greater variety of flavors early on, the infants are less likely to, um, you know, pull away or avoid um, a wide variety of foods. They generally eat a more varied diet. So I do, I personally like to, as long as there's no signs of allergy or other, you know, problematic reactions happening to food, I like to introduce one new food a day personally. And as a precaution, if I'm introducing something that's a known allergen and the top allergens are eggs, peanuts, milk, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, soy, and wheat, then I would wait three days before introducing something new. And sometimes this sounds like a lot of time to wait for people, but if you're introducing, say you've introduced like five different foods, you know, once you've introduced a couple foods, you have things to choose from in rotation. It's not like you have to eat those foods every single day. So it's not that big of a deal, personally, in my opinion. And also, they're not eating like massive quantities of things. So people think that, you know, maybe one bite of food doesn't count as an exposure. But when you look at the research, as little as two grams of a food counts as an exposure to an allergen. So that's like a very tiny, tiny little taste of something. It's not like eating two tablespoons of a food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially how much is really going in, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's more about the taste. So then you mentioned that flavor window, and we talked about variety of foods. How about different flavors as well and spicy foods and seasoned foods? What about that? So this is, there's, this is like a three-part question. <laughs> so um, <laughs> one, like I said with the flavor window, I think it's important to introduce a, as wide a variety of flavors as you can um, early on. And so, you know, once you start solids, I think that's a time to start thinking about what flavors do you want baby to become accustomed to. It's probably things that you as a household are eating, right? Um, but also introducing some challenging flavors, which we don't typically think of as that's like a baby food. Because I think most people think of baby foods that they need to be like, bland and slightly sweet. You think about the things that most people typically introduce and you have what? You have like the rice cereal or sweet potato or banana or applesauce. Like they're all kind Peaches, of sweet. Yeah, they're apple. Yeah. Peaches, yeah. They're all like sweet, bland foods. Pear puree, 
peas mixed with apple puree. You see a lot of like adding sweet things to savory foods. If you shop like the baby puree, my section turkey and blueberry store. and yeah. Yeah. You know, honestly, I think it's kind of bizarre. Um, but I think that it's okay to leave with complex flavors. So, you know, with my son, I was introducing like liver pate, really fantastic source of iron and zinc. Um, but also a flavor that a lot of adults, if you didn't grow up eating liver are like, they're weirded out by, but babies, babies love it. Um, we introduced curries, although I realized my son didn't like spicy foods. So we went with um, mild curries. And when I say doesn't like, I mean, would have like full on meltdown over foods that were too spicy. He's really sensitive to spicy, which surprises me because my husband and I are not. Um, so we'll see if our daughter is the same way. Um, you can consider like bitter vegetables, you know, cooked and pureed greens, or if you're doing baby led weaning, you know, finger foods. So usually um, vegetables that are in the shape of a finger that baby can pick up with their hand and then sort of like gum on the end of it. Um, they're not getting a ton of it, but they do eventually gum off little chunks and, and get at least the flavor exposure and a, a little bit um, to eat. You could think of sour flavors. So like a slice of grapefruit, if you're introducing dairy, plain yogurt, um, seafood, just like, you know, non-sweet vegetables, like introduce asparagus a little bit or introduce some cooked onion, you know, introducing things that aren't necessarily all sweet. And we have research showing that, you know, if you introduce vegetables first, you'll have greater um, acceptance of vegetables with infants later on, where if you lead with fruits, the baby's more likely to want more fruits. And I can tell you, kids are always going to love fruit. <laughs> They're always going to be eating, you know, plenty of fruit and sweet and starchy foods. So it's nice to also have the option of a kid who will eat broccoli and, you know, eat some of these flavors that you wouldn't necessarily think of as kid foods. Yeah. Oh, no, that was my experience totally. Of Once once you introduce the sweets, the, the fruit, it's harder to get mm -hmm. them to eat that spinach or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. And sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments, which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. So for example, I take advantage of Acorn's roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts I make in my linked account to the nearest dollar, and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio. Also, Acorns can recommend an expert build portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy peasy investing. Head to acorns.com slash birthful or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC Acorns is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. Diaper Rash 
it can be a truly uncomfortable experience for a baby. And so I find that one of the biggest conundrums when diapering is figuring out what diaper cream to use. So many options are thick and goopy, making them hard to apply and hard to wipe off. But I can personally say that this is not the case for Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant that is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, designed as a breathable formula to help maintain an optimal skin barrier while allowing the healing to occur. This butt balm was developed by a mom who is also a doctor, hence the name Dr. Mom Butt Balm, when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash and she wasn't about to settle. So she created Dr. Mom Butt Balm to go on smooth and be easy to remove while also being gentle on your baby's delicate skin. With Dr. Mom Butt Balm, you can say goodbye to excessive wiping to clean your little one's already chafed skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is so soft and goes on so smooth that you'll only need a small amount instead of having to layer on a thick goop. Plus, it has a lovely minty scent. Learn more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com. That's drmombuttbalm.com. Or look for it at Amazon.com. This is a hot, like, debated topic of what you start with. Do you do purees or do you do what's called baby-led weaning? And you mentioned it um, a little bit before the break. Can you go more more into what baby-led weaning is all about? Sure. So baby-led weaning, or you'll see it with the acronym BLW um, a lot of times on the, the interwebs, is when instead of offering spoon-fed purees, which we would call standard weaning, um, babies are offered table foods right from the start. Now, they're in developmentally appropriate um, sizes and textures, so you're minimizing the risk of choking, Um, But essentially in baby led weaning, the infants pick up their own food and self-feed. Whereas in standard weaning, it's like the parent is in control of what the baby eats because it's what's on the spoon and what's offered to the baby. Um, And the baby led weaning movement started gaining traction in the early 2000s. Um, You know, you have the, the baby led weaning book by Jill Rapley out of the Rapley, I don't know how to say her name. Um, out of the UK. And now it's become like pretty common. I mean, quite a few people are talking about baby led weaning and and using that approach these days. Yeah. And I would like to like just get everybody on board to change the name of it and just say baby led feeding because mm-hmm. <laughs> this weaning, I, I think the problem is in, in England, the word weaning has a different connotation, not necessarily means weaning from breastfeeding. And mm-hmm. so it can create some confusion. Mm-hmm. So that's, we're not talking yeah. about weaning from breastfeeding. I like baby led complementary foods or baby led, yeah, baby led solids, baby led feeding. There's, there's so many books on this topic nowadays that there's a lot of people who make those distinctions, but I think it's still stands by the original name that was given, which in the UK works fine in the US. Yeah, we think of weaning as stopping breastfeeding. And it it does give an unfortunate connotation because really, babies are still getting the vast majority of their nutrition from 
either breast milk or formula for quite a long time. Um, you know, definitely continues like through, you know, from six months through the first year and depending on how long you're breastfeeding, I mean, it can be quite a long time before you see the, the ratio shift between like quantity of milk or formula versus quantity of solid foods. So I do prefer like introduction of complementary foods or solid foods over um, weaning as well. Yeah, but we're stuck with that or we just have to mm -hmm. like do the explanation every time. <laughs> so yep. you've got the purees, you've got the complementary foods. Is one approach better than the other? What is there a benefit to one over the other? What did you find? So, you know, I went into writing about this topic with just my experience with my son, um, where I was pretty gung-ho about doing baby lead weaning from everything that I had read. Um, and then it sort of shifted into us doing a combo approach. <laughs> and so when I started looking at the research to write up this post, because I don't want everything to just be my, you know, N of one anecdotal experience, um, I found it kind of interesting on what is out there. So, you know, baby lead weaning is really you know, described as a better approach for introducing solids, you know, associated with less food fussiness. They say that when baby is able to feed themselves, they'll be able to regulate their appetite better. Um, th some people suggest that because of that, they there'll be a lower rate of overweight or obesity in children as well. Um, and some of those things are true, but I'd say the research on baby led weaning is still in its infancy, <laughs> for, you know, not to make a pun out of this. Um, we only have one randomized controlled trial in baby led weaning where you have like two groups of um, infants or two families who are um, randomly assigned to either puree, parent led weaning or baby starts with solids, baby led weaning. Um, and that one didn't find any significant differences between either of the groups. And then a lot of the other studies are just survey-based studies, which are asking parents what they have observed. And there was a big study in um, 2019, which I like. It was still, it was a survey study, but what I liked about it is that they had people self-stratify into whether you were strict parent-led weaning, predominant parent-led weaning, or strict baby-led weaning, or predominant baby led weaning, where you had like differing degrees of, yeah, a lot of parents say they're going to do X or Y, but they do some combination approach. And I like that this study um, allowed for that. It allowed for real life, essentially. And overall, this study found that baby led weaning was linked to parents taking less control over their toddler's eating habits, such as like less encouragement to try to increase consumption of a certain food. Baby led weaning led to more shared meal times. So that means, and also parents eating the same meal as what their, their child is eating, where the people who had purees often had separate purees for baby, and then the family had a different meal. The people who did baby led weaning tended to introduce solids later. There was a greater likelihood of offering foods other than baby cereal as the first foods. Um, and, and infants also seem to receive a greater variety of um, flavors and vegetables as well. And they also lower food fussiness and 
parent reported greater food enjoyment for the toddlers who are allowed to self-feed um, most of the time. So this is all promising, um, but both this study, the randomized trial, and a lot of other studies on it have cautioned that, you know, the actual differences in some of these effects are not that great, and that they suspect that there's some degree of the parents who actually choose baby led weaning are those who parent in a different way and they practice responsive feeding more than like trying to, you know, force feed a, a spoonful of applesauce to their infant, right? With baby led weaning, you have this responsive feeding built in because baby is feeding themselves, but you can also take a responsive feeding approach even if you're offering um, pureed foods as well. So I guess in summary, yes, it seems to be beneficial overall. Um, it's questionable how great of a benefit it is over purees, but some of that might just be the types of parents who choose baby led weaning to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I like the emphasis on the responsive feeding, regardless of method and also not being rigorous to one or the other, understanding that life is life and that it's hard to just be dogmatic about, you know, my baby will only eat this way. Mm -hmm. And right. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I really liked the idea of baby led weaning. And then I ended up with a very, um, my son was just very fastidious. He didn't like big messes and people don't like, can't understand that. Cause they're like, what are you talking about? You have like a little boy and boys are messy. And like, no, not all boys are messy. And he'd get really frustrated when there was food on his clothes or food on his face and he actually would sometimes prefer me to feed him and so and even at this age sometimes if we're having soup he wants me to feed him he's totally capable of using a spoon himself he just hates having stuff spilled on his clothes mm. <laughs> it's hard for people to like grasp that concept but kids and babies have very distinct personalities and you really just have to parent the the child you have in front of you Oh, and from the get-go, those personalities, like, they come out with it, mm -hmm. right? It's, I know, it's, it's bizarre. There. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's even there, you can, and how they behave in the womb. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Um, and when I read that on the blog post of you describing how your baby hated getting dirty and hated messes and how, you know, that that was his personality, I, first of all, like, give you kudos for recognizing that because that takes observation and paying attention and being respectful of your child and letting him eat however he preferred which probably at the end created more enjoyment of food oh yeah and we did and we did a whole bunch of baby led weaning um we did primarily baby led weaning but i learned that for things that were really messy he would prefer that I self-feed. And he was still in full control. He would lean forward with his mouth open or sign for more when he could talk, would say more. Or sometimes, you know, I just, you know, front load the spoon and he could feed himself. Or if I'm holding the spoon, he'd, he'd grab it with my hand and pull it to his mouth. It still very much can exist in a responsive feeding approach. And it's also okay to do a combination of things. There was pretty much always uh, finger foods also offered at the table. But say if we're having something like a curry, um, he was not the kid who would want to like goop his hands into a bowl of curry or stew and try to like feed himself. He would much prefer that I would feed him that with a spoon. So 
we did, you know, and hey, it saved on all the meltdowns over more baths or more outfit changes or more wiping down of the face, which he also hated. So yeah. <laughs> oh, and I want to bring this perspective also to the parents like I personally hate messes. So I had a harder time with giving my daughter foods that would make a mess. Because then mm -hmm. I would have to clean up. And so like, you know, you can consider your own personalities as well. That's into this, true not too, just the because, baby. yeah, you do end up with like this two foot radius of food all around their chair at the end of the meal, typically, even if they're very fastidious. I mean, when they're learning, there's a lot of things being dropped. And then sometimes they get to the phase where they think it's really funny to drop food mm -hmm. <laughs> and have you go and fetch it for them. So, I mean, maybe people who have dogs uh, would not find the cleanup too much work, but for us without pets, it was like, yeah, it could be a lot of work to clean up after meals. Yeah, we used to do a plastic uh, uh, tablecloth underneath her chair mm, around smart. her. Yeah, just to, yeah. Um, what are other things that need, people need to pay attention to when doing baby-led weaning or eating. And you, you talked about personality um, and you talked about the size and shape and texture and smushing against the roof of your mouth. But would you just do like a summary of that? Just because we've mentioned it in a lot of different places and I want to make sure we're not missing anything. Yeah. So first would be like an appropriate size, shape, or texture for baby. So if you're doing purees, that's pretty easy. Um, as long as you're avoiding purees that are like really sticky, like nut butters, for example, are not recommended for babies, at least not like a spoonful of nut butter. You can do like a very, very thin smear on something as a means of introducing, say, if you want to introduce peanut for the peanut allergen exposure, you would do a very thin smear on, say, like a piece of banana or something, but you don't give them a spoonful. That actually can be a choking hazard. Otherwise, purees are like pretty easy. You just thin to the appropriate um, texture that your baby can tolerate with either breast milk formula or water. Um, with baby led weaning, Typically, if we're starting talking about like very early introduction to solids, they, their pincer grasp, like, you know, getting your thumb and forefinger together is still developing and it's hard for them to pick up like a tiny little chunk of food, um, even though that might be the appropriate size for them to break down in their mouth by smooshing it against the roof of their mouth. So instead, you want to start with a sort of finger sized shape of food, like the size of an adult finger. So if you're doing like roasted sweet potatoes, for example, you can cut them into sweet potato fry shape. Or if you're doing um, like a broccoli florette that still has a stem on it, baby can pick that up, assuming it's been, you know, it's cooked to a soft texture, they can pick that up and at least um, for my son, when we do broccoli, he always liked to eat on like the florette part of it, the part that looks like a little tree. And it's surprising how much of it they can gum off over time. And um, as they get older and older, of course, and have teeth and all that, they get better at eating that. Um, a spear of asparagus would be another example or um, a slice of avocado. And you can even leave a portion of the skin on at the bottom end to help them grasp it better because it can be really slippery. Um, that would be, you know, all would be appropriate size, shape, texture for baby if you're doing a baby led weaning approach. And can we talk a little bit about the choking versus gagging distinction? Yeah. Because I think one of the things that people are really 
apprehensive about with baby led weeding is my baby, you know, the fear is the baby's going to choke. Um, but babies tend to yep. gag before they choke or like mo way more, right? They do. They gag a lot. And it's actually a, a reflex and it's much further forward in the mouth of babies than adults. So you do see it pretty common as baby learns to um, move food around in their mouth with their tongue. They've probably, by the time that you're introducing solids, they've probably been teething for a while. I don't know. Both my babies started teething at like three months, even though <laughs> they didn't get teeth for a while. So um, if they're teething on toys, you'll also see them probably gag every once in a while where they put the toy a little too far back in their mouth. Um, I think the best thing is for parents to understand that that is normal, um, but also to watch some YouTube videos to see actual babies eating where you can see the gag reflex and see what happens because it can look really dramatic and kind of scary, um, but it's important that you let the baby move that food piece forward and out of their mouth themselves and not as an adult try to stick your finger in to like pull it out of their mouth because that's actually more likely to shove the chunk of food into the back of their throat and actually cause them to choke versus gagging their body is reflexively trying to expel the food so I do have a video of that um, linked in my blog post. It's like a baby center video that you could look up on YouTube or look up any other videos on like baby led weaning gagging, for example, and, and see for yourself. Um, with choking, um, you know, that's when a piece of food has become lodged in the back of their throat and the airway is blocked completely. And so in this case, you don't, it's actually less dramatic sometimes than um, gagging because the baby won't be able to breathe in at all. They won't make any noise. Usually with gagging, they're making a lot of noise. Um, with gagging, they're turning red. Their eyes are watering. With choking, it's like, sure, they may have turned red, but they also may start turning blue because they're not getting any oxygen either. Um, so it's just important to always keep a close eye, especially in the early month or months of introducing solids. Um, get used to what the gagging reflex looks like and also understand what to do if in fact baby does choke but choking is really really rare I, I do want to stress that yes it's important to be aware of it but it's really 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 rare um, particularly if you're following the safety guidelines on the appropriate size and texture of foods to offer mm -hmm. and it's always a good idea regardless of how you're feeding your baby to take an infant cpr class ahead of time yes yeah just yes. in case and let me tell you the weirdest thing though my first memory ever i was about one and if you talk to my mom about this she's like oh my god yes you were so i was eating fish and a bone got stuck in my throat oh. and i remember the feeling of like it hurts your ears it needles oh. your ears when you eat and i've i still eat fish i've eaten like fish is just part of my life so i've had that <laughs> experience before again but she just saw like I, I i remember the pain but she describes i was eating and then suddenly i put my hands over my ears and went oh, oh interesting and just like a little whine and she leapt like a mama bear and did put her hand down my throat but was able to grab the you know because it was just the the bone itself right it wasn't completely blocking your airway but that's a 
it was just lodged, right? Yeah, and she did, oh and she gosh. grabbed it and took it out. So that's my first memory. I remember lots of early, way early memories because I think maybe that wow. one was so jarring. I don't know. I was around one. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who's eaten a fair amount of um, fish, especially like fresh caught fish, it's hard to get all those bones out. So for people who are introducing fish, that's a that's a good one is to like double check that there's no little bones in the in the fish before you feed it. Yeah, no, it is a tough one. But I you know, I still love the fish. Um, and one thing we haven't talked about, I know you talked about flavor window, you also mentioned on your in your um, blog post a texture window. What is that about? Yeah, so with um, with texture, you know, we, we do want to introduce baby not only to a lot of flavors, but also textures. And have you, I don't know if you've ever come across a toddler who will like only eat purees or have juice or have macaroni and cheese and they are like averse to having some vegetable because like the texture is weird or I don't want to have this because the texture is weird. Maybe mm -hmm. they don't like certain fruits because the texture is weird and they're just used to like mushy pureed stuff. And I think we, we tend to see, I would say even more of that nowadays as these um, pouches have become more popular and no hate against the pouches because we, we have used those too. They are very convenient. Um, but regardless of the way that you, introduce solid foods to baby, whether it's baby led weaning or purees, you do want to think about including complex textures um, into the baby's diet. You know, it's funny when you look at, you know, what a baby might be offered in terms of food that's developmentally appropriate at say age 10, 11 months or so, doesn't really matter whether they started with purees or baby led weaning, they should be getting finger foods by that point and foods of different textures. Um, and they found that if you introduce complex textures into baby's diet, um, they suggest a minimum of around 10 months of age, there's greater acceptance of different textures of food later on. And that's also linked to less um, food fussiness or feeding problems later on in childhood as well. So um, if you're doing purees, that means like, yes, you know, you'll start with fairly thin, smooth purees, but then maybe incorporating some that are a little bit thicker or have some chunks or thinking about incorporating some soft finger foods a la baby led weaning style a little earlier um, as baby shows interest would be, you know, a good call. And I mean, for me, honestly, like we're kind of lazy with, with the whole um, introduction of foods and that baby was often just eating some of what we were eating. I mean, that's kind of the appeal of baby led weaning for a lot of people. And so if something didn't seem like it would be an appropriate texture for baby to just eat baby led weaning style, I would just mash it up with a fork, you know, and mashing up with a fork is going to be a, you know, much more complex texture than say pureeing something in a blender or a baby food grinder or something like that. So that's another easy thing for parents to do to introduce texture is just use your fork to mash it up a little bit instead of fully pureeing. And I'm looking at my notes and I have like a few quick last questions here. Um, I know we talked about allergens. What about honey? Where are we at with that? 
Oh, yeah, that's one that I don't think I mentioned in my post, but probably should have. So thank you. Um, honey is recommended to avoid until one year of age because it can contain um, the Clostridium botulinum toxin in it or spores of the of um, potentially exposing people to get botulism. Um, and you don't want that. Infants are more susceptible to that. So they do recommend avoiding honey until one year of age. Um, you know, what's kind of funny about this, and this harkens back to one of our previous interviews talking about food safety and pregnancy is there are many different foods that could have Clostridium botulinum spores on them. So it's not just honey, but honey is the one that everybody talks about. Um, anything that's grown in the ground could potentially um, have those spores as well. So you just want to, you know, of course, keep food safety in mind for all reasons. But I, I don't see any reason for us to go against the official guidelines of avoiding honey. Baby's going to be fine without honey for a year. And um, they'll have plenty of sweet flavor exposure. Mm -hmm. Something to look forward to afterwards. <laughs> right. Yeah. What? For some reason, I seem to remember there was a thing about strawberries also waiting with strawberries. Am I misremembering or is there a guideline around strawberries? Mm, I don't think there's an official guideline on strawberries, um, but it is a high histamine food. And so some people will have a, you know, quasi allergic reaction to it. Well, they're, they'll break out in a rash when they have too many strawberries. Actually, I had that when I was a kid. I don't know if it was as an infant, but I remember being sensitive to strawberries for a while. Um, in sometime in toddlerhood, I believe I'd break out in a rash if I had too much. So um, but no, there's no, that doesn't make like the allergen list per se. And since you mentioned reactions, what are those signs of allergic reaction that people should pay attention to as they're, you know, introducing things and in case to recognize that their baby's having an adverse reaction? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of different signs of allergy um, to look for. I mean, some of the typical ones are, um, you know, a rash is one of the earliest things that you might see. Um, if it's a very severe sort of a reaction, they might have difficulty breathing, like their throat is closing up, they might get like puffy or swollen. Um, so I think it's important that people are aware of some of these signs and symptoms of allergies. If you have, um, if you have like a history of allergies in your family, for, react for example, and you're worried about an allergic reaction, maybe talk over with your doctor if they think you should take a different approach to introducing solids or maybe there's you know some additional precautions they want you to have but you know it's usually typically some kind of hives or rash um, swelling some people might get like a runny nose or sneezing watering eyes um, tummy cramps diarrhea you know some changes in stooling is typical when you start solids so diarrhea might not be the only sign um, and then um, in cases where it's severe, like I mentioned, the wheezing or chest tightness, or especially if there's any swelling of the tongue or throat, so that starts restricting their air airways, um, that is something where you do want to seek medical attention. I hope I don't need to, I don't need to emphasize that. That should be obvious. If you're, it seems like your baby is having difficulty breathing, um, that's when you would want to call 911 and, and get help immediately.
Definitely, definitely. And paying attention to family history. I know um, people, and there's, this is a total tangent, but there are situations where people might have allergies to, um, uh, what is it? it so F-PIES, which is, I'm trying to... Yep. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm the, trying to remember the acronym for that one, it's too. It's for protein. Uh, it's like a, a milk protein intolerance. Um I'll look it up and milk put it in the show. induced enterocolitis syndrome. There you go. Um, yeah. And it's, they're actually allergic to breast milk and milk and, and lots of other things aside from that. But it's the protein that creates the allergy. And I have had some friends who, introducing anything when you have that level of allergic reaction requires going to the hospital and being at the hospital to mm -hmm. test the food, right? So mm -hmm. um, we're not trying to make light of al of allergies at all, but for the general population, this is not going to be the case. Right. And you honestly, you know, mother's instinct, you have to just go by your gut about what you're observing in your baby. And if, if there is a history of allergies in the family, um, generally there's like a higher risk of allergies in the in your kiddos as well and so take that into consideration and have a plan in place for when you introduce some of those foods mm -hmm. um in terms of so just a few more questions in terms of quantity of food and how often to do food what are we looking at around when you start solids around that six months seven months Age. Yeah, so I mean, very, very early on, and that's, that's the phase that I'm in right now with my daughter, so it all comes back to me again. You're just introducing the tiniest amount of food. Um, generally, the suggestion is that you introduce foods as like one quote meal, I'm going to put meal in heavy air quotes, because it's not really a meal. Um, you're going to offer some bites of food <laughs> once a day. That's, that's generally the suggestion early on. Um, I personally am sometimes just offering a bite of food whenever we're eating, but I'm not pushing quantity at all. Um, so that's just how we take it personally in our house. But um, the, the standard recommendation is offering one quote meal um, per day and to offer it after baby has had a full feeding and being breast milk or formula. Um, so you're not using solids as a replacement for food. It's the solids are in addition to, or as a replacement for milk, I should say, but the solids are in addition to the breast milk or formula that baby is already getting. You're not trying to fill them up on solids. You're just offering those in addition. Right. Because the breast milk or the formula is still going to have more of the balanced nutrition they have, considering they're not going to actually ingest that much food anyway. Exactly. And yeah. What about um, vitamin D? That And I know that's like an unrelated thing, but there's always a question about do you, babies need vitamin D supplementation? So, um, yeah, so this gets into tricky territory, I guess. So if a baby is formula feeding, I'll start with that. The formula is fortified with vitamin D. Um, and at levels sufficient to maintain baby's vitamin D status. So formula feeders carry on. Breast milk is often low in vitamin D if a mother is not 
taking in adequate amounts herself. And that happens via mainly sunshine or supplements and a little bit through food. Um, so we do have data showing that if mothers are taking in an average of 6,400 IUs of vitamin D per day while breastfeeding, their breast milk will contain sufficient amounts of vitamin D to maintain their baby's vitamin D levels as well. Um, if a mother is not regularly supplementing or does not happen to live in a low latitude, warm, sunny climate where they're getting lots and lots of sun exposure without sunscreen, which is very few people, <laughs> um, then she would want to be supplementing her baby directly with an infant vitamin D supplement. So like the American Academy of Pediatric Stance is that breastfed infants receive a supplement of 400 IUs of vitamin D per day. We have research showing that you can omit that supplement if a mom is taking 6,400 IUs of vitamin D per day while breastfeeding. So that holds true, that continues to hold true um, through this early introduction solid period because baby's still taking in a considerable amount of breast milk and that should cover their vitamin D needs. And since mom also needs her vitamin D or the, the breastfeeding person needs their vitamin D, it's probably, if they can, better to go with the supplement for themselves, um, especially if they're there like living in Rochester like I am and right. get no sun. Yeah, and so in that... survey studies, you know, a full 80 to 90% of, of people who are breastfeeding actually choose to opt for taking the supplement themselves. Um, they find it difficult to get baby the vitamin D or they forget or whatever. And it, it's a two birds with one stone situation. We both need vitamin D. Right. <laughs> so maybe I'll take it and then you get it through my milk and we're both covered. Yeah. Easier, <laughs> easier. That's what I would say, but yeah, yeah. people have their options. <laughs> there are options, very good. Is there anything else that we didn't get to that we should mention here relating to starting solids? Uh, you know what? I realized that I didn't give a full answer to one of your questions, which was about the seasoned food. Oh, yeah. And we yeah, talked yeah. about flavors and, you know, introducing different flavors and curries and whatnot. But um, this delves into the salt conversation. Should you give baby salted foods? And I don't want to leave people with a cliffhanger, but also I'm still like knee deep in the research on this. I am writing a full separate post on um, the really messy science behind infant sodium recommendations and whether or not it's okay to give baby salted foods or if you need to give them entirely unsalted foods. Um, I'm writing a post on that that'll have a whole bunch of research um, cited for it. So again, sorry to leave a cliffhanger, but I, I do want to point out that like, sorry, I didn't answer that question. And a better answer than I can give here, a more complete answer is coming. And whenever that's ready, we'll make sure to link it on the show notes as well so people can go read it. Um, but that reminds me, what about the recommendation with water? Should you give babies water at any point? And yeah. Well, that's another thing I don't think I put in the post. Um, yeah, the general recommendation is once you start introducing solid foods, you also can introduce water at meals. Um, you could start getting baby used to either drinking from a cup with your assistance or drinking from a sippy cup. Um, so yeah, you could offer water or additional like pumped breast milk in a cup or formula in a sippy cup alongside 
the meal. Um, yeah, absolutely, you can. And that's that's kind of like a big milestone, right? Because until you introduce solids, all the fluids baby is getting is from your milk or from formula. So it's sort of a fun thing to be able to also offer them their own cup. Yeah, and and be okay if you gave them a cup of breast milk, <laughs> a little tiny bit of breast milk, if that ends up all over the table. Be okay with that. <laughs> right? <laughs> I was all gung-ho with my son. I was like, I'm going to do this mason jar sippy cup and no toxins and no plastic. And yeah, you start having a mason jar um, thrown or dropped onto the ground like a dozen times at every time you're offering food and like denting up your wood floor. And you're like, oh, right. I see why people use plastic. Okay. <laughs> yep. I since found like a silicone um, sippy cup and, and that, that appeases my concern about plastic, um, but also doesn't dent up the floor and make a huge crash like a glass jar does. So. Right? Yeah. And every time you're cringing, it's like, don't break. <laughs> I know it's like with kids it's like they're putting so many things in their mouth and like freaking teething on the couch or something like they're exposed to so many things it's okay if you have a plastic sippy cup yes there are you know silicone options and there's silicone covers for glass jars and, and all of that or glass bottles but um it's also like it's gonna be okay if everything is not picture perfect like sometimes you need to do things to save your sanity too indeed so may that be your motto for introducing solids people that are out there listening best of luck and if you have any questions or want to follow up with lily how can they do that how can they connect with uh what you are up to well, if you have a commentary on that post, you'll link to that Starting Solids uh, blog post. You're welcome to leave a comment there. That's probably the place I'd be most likely to see it. Yep. And I do try to respond to as many questions as I can there. Um, you can find me on my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. You can also find me on social media. And these days I'm most active on Instagram and my account is the same as my website. So it's at Lily Nichols RDN. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being back on the show. As always, this is so much fun. I love talking to you. Likewise, it was, it was a good time, just like the previous times. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Oh, and here is what Lily had for breakfast. I had two eggs, and then I had some leftover vegetables from the night before, and then tea. And I also had kind of like a breakfast dessert with some frozen berries and cream. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2020 by Adriana Lozada. Hey, mighty one. Did you know that if you started listening to one Birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? 
That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.